0: Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at coreorg live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit cora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words of Paul's from the first letter to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in the Gospel of John, we hear these words Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I give, for the life of the world is my flesh. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. The one who eats this bread will live forever. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of this scripture. Did you know that church was Jesus' idea? Why did he think church was important? Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize people. But what does baptism really do? Jesus told his followers to remember him when he was gone with bread and wine. And that sounds good, but how does that work? Three powerful gifts church, baptism, and communion.
1: On the night that Kevin Timmons was inaugurated as the president of the Kansas City Restaurant Association, he's a member of our congregation, owner of uh, several restaurants in Kansas City. He asked if I would speak and give a sort of a Uh, inspiring talk for the folks who were there. These were restaurant owners, they were employees, managers, they were cooks, they were a whole variety of people in the restaurant industry, industry in Kansas City. And I was happy to do that. And as I did, I shared with them, you know, the role that you play in our lives is so important because so many of the most important things that happen in our lives happen around meals. And I remember, you know, a baby's born and and shortly after that, there's a meal and and people get married and there's a wedding reception, there's a meal. Uh, We think about the, the moments when we're sick and somebody brings over a meal or the times when we're grieving and after the funeral, people bring food over. When we're celebrating, we celebrate with food. When we grieve, we grieve with food. Food is so important. When we ask somebody to marry us, it's often over dinner or dinner shortly after that. I mean, all of these moments are often celebrated and memorialized, with food. I don't know if you can think of any really important meals in your life, but in my mind, I can think back to times where I had meals. I remember what I had or where I was or what we were eating at these particular moments that were just forever etched in my brain, in part because I was sharing a meal with somebody in an important moment in my life. So when we think about those kind of meals, we recognize in the Bible, the same is true, that food plays a really important role in the Bible and meals played an important role. And there are hundreds of these kind of meals that you can find examples of people who are breaking bread or food playing some role in the scripture. But there are two stories of food and meals that stand above all of the rest in scripture. And we're gonna talk about one of those today. I wanna to begin with the Old Testament picture of, uh, of the most important meal, and that is, uh, that is the, the Passover meal. So the Passover meal, you'll remember the Jewish people and our Jewish friends to the present time, all the way up, you know, every spring for the last 3,300 years, the Jewish people have come together, the Israelites came together and they shared a meal at the Passover. They share this meal to remember what had happened in the past and in some ways to go back to that moment to return to that moment by sharing the meal in the present and as they did that to remember who they are and who god is and so at the passover they were remembering the night that they were slaves in egypt the israelites were slaves in egypt and god delivered them and he said i want you to prepare a meal i want you to, to sacrifice a, a, a lamb and i want you to put the blood on the doorpost so the angel of death passes over your house when the plague of the firstborn uh, children dying is uh, is is taking place in the rest of egypt i want you to prepare a meal and you don't have time for the food to leaven. So the bread to leaven. So you're going to eat unleavened bread. I want you to have your sandals on and and ready to run at the moment when when Pharaoh finally says, leave, you know, leave this place. You're no longer slaves. And so after this, God commanded the Israelites every year at this time, you were to remember, remember this moment, remember that you were slaves and you remember it with the food. And so they eat the same kind of food, roasted lamb and bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery in Egypt and wine. They share in wine together. For Christians, and by the way, that story is the defining story of every Jewish person who's faithful, if they're a practicing Jew, that is their defining story, commemorated, remembered, and experienced through a meal. For Christians, the paramount story, the paramount meal in the New Testament is the Last Supper of Jesus. And this is taking place on the night before he's crucified, the Last Supper, he's, he's sitting with his disciples, they're in the upper room, and they are sharing together, interestingly enough, a Passover meal. It was Passover. And Jesus takes this meal and he reinterprets it. And he tells them that through this meal, they're to continue to remember him. Just as the Israelites were and the Jewish people were to continue to remember their slavery in Egypt and God's deliverance, they're to remember that they have been slaves to sin and Jesus is delivering them. They're to remember him. And so he tells them with the bread and the wine to remember him to do this again and again and again. I want to remind you that that story is for the Christian, our defining story wrapped up in a meal that we eat that we taste we experience we call it a sacrament and we learned last week that a sacrament is a visible act that actually conveys or actually gives the grace of god and that's what we experience when christians look at the holy at the the meal holy communion and as we do that i want to remind you one more thing about meals the word companere is the latin word for breaking bread with somebody Uh, literally means to break bread with someone and we have from that word companion. And so breaking bread, we do that with companions. We become friends over meals. We, we share together in life over meals. And that's also part of what we're going to find in the Lord's Supper. So today we're going to try to understand the Lord's Supper. And I'll mention this to you. We could have a five-week sermon series on this and still not cover all of the things we should know about Holy Communion. The struggle I had this week as I was preparing this sermon is there's so much more that I wanted to be able to share with you. I'm gonna share with you just a taste. We're gonna scratch the surface of what Holy Communion means in this message. So I wanna begin with the earliest account of Holy Communion found in the New Testament, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul writes his first letter to the Corinthians around 53 AD. The earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, is probably written a decade or more after Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And so when we go to 1 Corinthians 11, we're receiving the earliest account of the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. And this is taking place, again, Paul's writing this 20 to 25 years, 20 to 23 years after the death of Jesus. So let's take a look at what Paul writes in this early account of this important meal. Paul writes, "'For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, "'that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, "'took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, "'he broke it and said, "'This is my body that is for you.'" It's interesting, Paul's writing to the Corinthians uh, this instruction about the Lord's Supper because what was happening at that time is Christians would break bread together in one another's homes. When they would gather for worship and prayer, they would also have a meal. It was a fellowship meal, what was sometimes called a love feast. But that love feast, that meal they shared together was also meant to be their remembering, their fulfilling what Jesus has said. As often as you break this bread and drink this cup, remember me. And so they'd intertwine this love feast and this remembrance, this memorial of the last supper of Jesus, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. And Paul's having to correct them on some things. And so he's teaching them once more, this is what I receive from the Lord. I'm reminding you, this is what this is about. What I'd like us to do, and so what Paul says we also find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, a little variations, but very similar. I'd love for you to write down a few things, to write down the things you want to remember and reflect upon as we think about what Paul has just told us in 1 Corinthians 11. So let's begin. He, he starts and he says, Jesus began by giving thanks. So the Greek word for giving thanks is eucharistio, eucharistio, giving thanks. You recognize that word, Eucharistio? Because it's, the, it's really the, 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 the form that we have, another form of it, Eucharist, is what we call Holy Communion. It literally means to give thanks. And so Jesus starts by giving thanks. And every meal that we find Jesus has, in, you know, where we, we're reading about what he does before a meal, in the New Testament, we read that he gives thanks. He stops to give thanks. He says a blessing, a grace before the meal. And that's what happens here. And so when we talk about the Eucharist, we talk about, we're, we're really referring to that prayer that Jesus gave, that thanksgiving he gave, before he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And so it, this is about giving thanks. Before we receive Holy Communion, the pastor or the priest offers the great thanksgiving. And that great thanksgiving, it's, it's rooted and grounded in prayers that go back to I think the fourth century, maybe the fifth century. But it's that moment to stop and give thanks to God for what God has done, to, done for us in Jesus Christ. And so in part, this meal is about pausing when we have this meal to give thanks, thanks to God for what God has done for us who God is and how God came to us in Jesus. So the meal is in part about giving thanks to God for Jesus and Jesus' saving work in our lives. Now notice what happens next. After he gives thanks, we read, he broke the bread and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And before he shared the cup of wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So twice we read in this, in this short passage, that Jesus wanted us by this meal to remember him. We are meant to remember him. This is very important. He doesn't want to be forgotten. And it's not that he doesn't want personally for his ego needs to be forgotten. He doesn't want us to forget what God has done for us and is doing for us in Jesus. And when we remember him, he doesn't just say, do this in remembrance of my death. Although that's clearly part of what we're remembering in Holy Communion is Christ's death. But we're doing this to remember his birth, his life, his teachings, his miracles, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And so when we take the bread of Holy Communion, we're pausing and we're remembering who Jesus is. We're remembering what he's done. We're remembering and receiving that. So when we take the bread and here at resurrection, we dip it in the cup by intinction. And when we receive it, we are accepting Christ. We're receiving all that he is. We're receiving his life, death, and resurrection, his teachings, his ministry. We're receiving that. And we're hoping that that will shape our lives. So you've heard it said, you are what you eat. In part, this is the idea that when we take the bread and wine that now are for us, the body and blood of Jesus, and we receive them, we are hoping that we are transformed, that this meal is a sign of our faith in which we're accepting Christ <clears throat> and we're inviting him not only to dwell inside of us, I mean, we're actually taking him inside of us in a physical form. We're taking him inside of us and we're praying that like bread nourishes the body and shapes the body, that this holy meal of bread and wine representing the body and blood of Christ might shape and nourish our thinking, our minds, our hearts, our souls. This is a very important meal. Remember me, he says. All right, I want you to notice something else that Jesus says. He says, uh, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. <clears throat> the new covenant in my blood. What does this mean? Now, covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. And, and this in particular is a nod or an illusion Jesus is giving an allusion to something that happens in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus 20, God gives the 10 commandments to the Israelites on the, from the top of Mount Sinai, he gives the, the stone tablets to Moses. He brings them down. And then God says to the Israelites or has Moses say to the Israelites, listen, if you obey my commandments, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you obey I will be, if you obey, I will be your God, you will be my people. And then Moses, in order to signify how important this covenant was, he did something that was commonplace in the ancient Near East. He sacrificed an animal, he slaughtered an ox. And he poured out some of the blood from that ox onto a makeshift altar. And then he took some of the blood and he dipped a a branch in it and he begins to sprinkle the people with this blood. Now that sounds really creepy and weird to us, but wasn't so creepy and weird at that time, it signified something really, really important was happening. And this is what he says at that moment. He says, Moses says to the Israelites, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. So blood was used as a way of conveying a sense of a, a holy covenant, something lost its life in order, to, in order to bring about this binding agreement. So you not, better not miss it. You better not turn away from that covenant. This was really costly. It cost an animal its life, the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant my blood of the new covenant. And it's his blood that's being shed, not the blood of an oxen, not a blood of a lamb or goat or something else. It's Christ is shedding his blood to initiate or to make possible a covenant that God makes with not just the Israelites, but with all humankind. When he says a new covenant, that's an allusion that Jesus is making to the prophet Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah 31, 31, we read, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And God goes on to say that that covenant won't be like the covenant that he made in this case, 700 years earlier on Mount Sinai or 600 years earlier on Mount Sinai because God says they broke that covenant. My people turned away from that covenant. It won't be like that. It's not gonna be written on stone tablets. Instead, I'm gonna write this covenant. I'm gonna write my laws on your hearts that you might, and, and as Christians, we think that's what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, helps us to know what we should do, leads us and shapes us. I'm gonna write that law on your hearts. And, and then he goes on to say this, and I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. Jesus is alluding to all of this, that he becomes the lamb, the blood that, that's shed for this new covenant. And in this covenant, God promises to write his law in our hearts, but also to forgive our sins, to not remember them anymore. So the Lord's Supper is this sign when we receive it. It's a sign of the covenant that we have with God, that he's made a promise with us. Baptism is the same. It's a sign of that covenant that he's made And it costs Christ's life for that covenant, that binding agreement with us. But it's more than that. That binding agreement is an agreement that he will forgive our sins or our wrongdoings and not remember them anymore. When you come forward for Holy Communion, this is a moment in which you, when you take the bread and the wine and you receive it and you pause and you think about this, what Jesus was saying you realize that in that moment of receiving it, you are receiving once more the forgiveness of sins. It's not the bread and the, and the wine, it's not the body and blood of Christ that you were imbibing that, that, that bring about that forgiveness of sins, that happened on the cross. But when you're receiving it, you're receiving Christ once more, you're accepting his forgiveness. I remember some years ago, there was a man who was sitting in our sanctuary and I'd heard from his friend that he was coming for the first time, he'd been away from church for a long time, it was an older gentleman. And years ago, 30 years before, he'd had an affair, ended up getting divorced and, and, and his life had gone astray and, and, and the church had excommunicated him. His church had said, you cannot receive communion. You have divorced, you've not reconciled, you cannot receive communion. And from that time on, he just walked away from God. He felt so overwhelmed with guilt and he just felt like his, cause was a, his case was a hopeless cause. And his friend brought him here and said, at resurrection, there's new beginnings. At Church of the Resurrection, you can come forward for Holy Communion. I mean, Christ invites to his table all who have sinned and struggled and need grace and who long to live in fellowship with him. And so I watched as, as this man brought his friend forward and they came walking slowly down the aisle and I could see the tears on his face and he hesitated. I'm standing here serving communion at this particular station. And he hesitated while he's standing there like, is it okay for me to receive this or not? And, and, and the person next to me, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. This is for you. And slowly and carefully dipping it, the, the tears streaming down his face as he receives this holy, this holy communion and this sense of forgiveness. this, this lightness that happened, the sense of being restored and made right with Christ. You see, there was something physical and tangible that was conveying an invisible, but spiritual truth and grace. That's what the Eucharist is about in part. All right, so we move from that to, uh, to what happens next, where Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what does this mean? Two things, I think. Of course, when we, when we remember and we receive Holy Communion, we are remembering that Christ, our Savior, died, that we, that we serve and follow a crucified Messiah. And he died for us, for our sins and for us to demonstrate God's love and grace to us. And so when we do this, when we share the meal, we're remembering his death. We're proclaiming that our savior has died for us. But that's not the end of the story because it says until he comes again, until he comes again. And so when we think about that, until he comes again, what that's saying is that the end of the story wasn't Jesus' death. And and, and really the end of God's redemptive work in the world wasn't even his resurrection. But Christ will come again one day. And so we eat this meal until the day comes when we eat what the book of Revelation calls the wedding supper of the lamb. The Bible begins in a garden with a, with a meal. Uh, God says, you know, you can have anything you want to eat. They were vegetarians. You can eat any, any, anything that grows on the trees or the, or the ground. God told Adam and Eve, you get to the end of the Bible and God throws a party. He has a wedding banquet or supper for the lamb. And so we believe the day comes when we'll feast at that final victory table. But until then, we take this bread and wine and we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. As we do that, we, we remember as we proclaim his death that his death was for us. All right, so that walks us through just a brief summary of what we find in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that earliest account of, of Holy Communion. And it's very similar to what we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. So what we want to do now is to look to see what does John tell us about Holy Communion? Uh, how is it that he tells the story? And what's interesting in John's gospel is John has far more to say about the Last Supper than any of the, other, uh, of, the, of the other gospels. So the other gospels devote about a chapter to the Last Supper, no more than a chapter to the Last Supper. John's gospel has five chapters devoted to telling the story of the Last Supper, five chapters. But you know what you won't find in John's gospel? Jesus saying, Jesus taking the bread, blessing it and breaking it and saying, this is my body given for you as often as you do this. Remember me. He doesn't take the cup and say, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you do it, remember me. He doesn't say that in John's gospel. It's astounding that in John's gospel where he's got five chapters devoted to the last supper, he doesn't tell us that story, but he tells us the story in a different way. So remember John's writing his gospel 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing 50 or more years. He's writing probably 20 years after Mark's gospel. He's writing 30 years after Paul writes what he wrote in first Corinthians. By this time in the church, sharing this holy meal was commonplace. Everybody understood or, or understood a fair amount about what this meal meant. What John wants to do, and in John's gospel, throughout the gospel, he's always, he's using sometimes metaphor, sometimes he's using symbolism, but he uses this to teach us what all of this really, the deeper spiritual meaning of the things that were commonplace in the Christian faith or stories about Jesus. He doesn't care about telling you the exact story, how it happened. He cares deeply about you understanding what it means. And so that's what he's going to do in this gospel. And when he does that, he's going to do it in several ways. He has Jesus crucified when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. That's the timing's wrong compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he wants you to see that Jesus was the lamb of God who was laying down his life for us. When, when he talks about the last supper, he doesn't talk about it directly. He goes to, he takes us to John chapter six. John six is early in the gospel and there Jesus is feeding 5,000 people with, with five loaves of bread and two fish. And, uh, and Jesus doesn't uh, lift up the bread and say, this is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant." No, he doesn't do that. But he does stop to give thanks before he multiplies the loaves and feeds all these people. And then throughout that chapter, there's this interesting thing that's going on. He begins talking about how he is the manna that came down from heaven, like the Israelites who had manna in the wilderness. He he is a gift, you know, he's come from God to nourish us. But then he comes to this place where he starts talking about himself as the bread of life. And I want you to hear this because this understanding of uh, communion um, through the interpretive lens of John chapter six and the feeding of the multitudes had a huge impact on Christian theology when it came to what's happening in the Eucharist, particularly Roman Catholic theology. So listen to these words, and I'm I'm sort of reading through various verses in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Understand this, all these things that, that John is quoting Jesus as saying, are all trying to interpret and help the Christians understand what holy communion means. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Not like manna that wasn't alive. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the uh, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. "'Very truly, I tell you, "'unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man "'and drink his blood, you have no life in you.'" That, is, that just sounds so antithetical to everything. It sounds cannibalistic, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. But that's how some people would have heard it. Uh, "'Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, "'those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, uh, "'have eternal life.'" Let me go back to the line before. "'Very truly, I tell you, "'unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man "'and drink his blood, you have no life in you. "'Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood "'have eternal life, "'and I will raise them up on the last day.'" For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. The one who eats this bread will live forever. All right, I want to quickly unpack these verses we have here. So let's try to understand this is John's, it's it's his sacramental or, or, or his Eucharistic theology is coming out right here in John chapter six. So let's see what Jesus says and what this means for us. The first, verse 35, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, we all know that there's physical hunger, but what they're pointing to, what Jesus is pointing to here is a spiritual hunger, right? When we come to him, we find that we are are spiritually hungry, sometimes spiritually malnourished. We have deep spiritual needs. And often when we're not feeding them appropriately, we become sick when we're using the wrong things to feed them, when we're not eating at all spiritually, we find ourselves famished or, or, or you know, weak. And, and, and so Jesus is saying, these needs that you have, these hungers, these spiritual hungers and thirst, these, uh, these kinds of needs are what I came to meet. They're what I come to offer for you. So I'm reminded of, of something that God says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses one through three, a very similar idea. We read these words, all who are thirsty, all of you who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come buy food and eat. Without money and at no cost, buy wine and milk. Why spend money for what isn't food? This is such a great idea, Why, or such a great statement. Why are we spending so much money, our resources and our time and our talent in order to pursue things that won't actually satisfy us? Right? Why spend money for what isn't food or your earnings for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the richest of feasts. Listen and come to me. Listen and you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful loyalty to David. Here's once more this idea of covenant and this idea of, of there's, a, there's a spiritual food that we can't live without. You remember Jesus said to the devil who told him when he was fasting, you know, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, we don't live by bread alone. We live by something more. We have these existential needs and every one of us has them. We have needs for meaning and purpose and joy and hope and grace and mercy and love and acceptance. Forgiveness, all of this is what we need. We're yearning for these things. Sometimes we go out of our way. We we do things we should never do just to hope that somebody might like us or accept us in some way. And, and what we find Jesus saying here is, "I'm the bread of life. The things that you've been lurk, looking for, searching for deep down in your souls, what's well, me? I come to satisfy your hungry heart." I love this this hymn. It's a modern Catholic hymn on the Eucharist, and, and this is the the refrain: "You satisfy the hungry heart with gift of finest wheat." Come give to us, O saving Lord, the bread of life to eat. This week I was reading Sarah Miles' book, Take This Bread. Sarah Miles uh, was an atheist. She was raised by parents who were atheists. One day she wandered into, she was living in San Francisco, and one day she wandered into St. Gregory's Episcopal Church she, in, in, in the heart of San Francisco. She'd been noticing this building, was kind of curious about what was happening inside that building. And, and so here this, this atheist walks into this, you know walks into this church, and as she's walking in there, Uh, she hears, and here's what she says in her book. She says, I had no earthly reason to be there. I'd never heard a gospel reading, never said the Lord's prayer. I was certainly not interested in becoming a Christian or as I thought of it rather less politely, a religious nut. Jesus invites everyone to his table, the woman at the front said. And as we started to move up, gathered around the table and there was singing and standing and someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread in my hand saying, the body of Christ and handing me the goblet of sweet wine saying the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous, terrifying happened to me. Jesus happened to me. I still can't explain my first communion. It made no sense to me. I was in tears and physically unbalanced. I felt as if I had just stepped off a curb or been knocked over painlessly from behind. Holy communion knocked me upside down and forced me to deal with the impossible reality of God. That's the kind of power the Eucharist can have for people. When people come and 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 even if they don't understand, there are times in the middle of the mystery of that the Holy Spirit uses that and just grabs a hold of our hearts. And there are other times where we bring our faith to the to the table. We we come and we realize what we need and that Jesus Christ offers to meet those needs. But you know, if we're not thinking about those things, if we're if we're not aware of what the Eucharist can mean, sometimes we just come up and take the little cracker and take the little piece of juice or a little bit of juice and we just go back to our seats and nothing happens. Nothing happens because part of what we we bring to the table is our faith or our yearning or our longing. But when we see it with spiritual eyes or maybe even we don't understand, but when we're going forward knowing that we have this tremendous need, there are ways in which the Holy Spirit can take that bread and wine and make it be for us the body and blood of Christ and knock us upside down. Let's read a little bit more. John chapter six, verse, uh, I think it's verse 54. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. And then Jesus continues in verse 58, the one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, Jesus' words, as John recalls them, become a bit uncomfortable. Again, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, but but part of what we're meant to see, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but part of what we're meant to see is that this also is the promise of eternal life. And, And in John's gospel, eternal life starts now. So we start living in this quality of life with God today, here and now. Eternal life starts now and then we continue at our death and we ultimately find ourselves in God's eternal kingdom. He will raise us up. And so the Eucharist is in part, among all these other things we just described, it is in part meant to signify that you have eternal life, that you belong to Christ and that life starts now, this quality of life starts now and is fulfilled in your passing. I think to times when I've gone to visit people who are near death and, uh, and take them communion so our pastors do this, our congregational care ministers will do this. This is a little communion set that I received when uh, years ago, 30 years ago, probably. And inside, when you open it up, there are communion chalices and there's the host and there's the, you, you pack the wine and the grape juice. And when you arrive at the person's home, you, know, you sit down together and you talk about what this means and how, how it signifies Christ's forgiveness and his love for us and his promise to us and, and how it signifies the life that he offers to us and, and how we remember him and his covenant with us. And, and then we stop and remember That in Holy Communion, Jesus said, when you take my bread, my flesh, and you drink my blood, when you take the bread and the wine of Holy Communion, it is a promise of eternal life. And there's something to sitting around with with several family members or friends as we partake of that together. The body of Christ given for you, the blood of our Lord given for you. St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, writing around the year 140, maybe a little earlier, spoke about Holy Communion, the Eucharist, as the medicine of immortality. This was just before he was fed to the lions. This was one more of the martyrs that happened in the early church at the hands of the Romans. But before he was devoured by the lions, he was able to say, the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality. I am not afraid to die because I have Christ in me and I belong to him. John 6.56 goes on to say this, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. To abide in Christ or to live in Christ, I love this, to abide is to, is to set with, it's to be with, it's to be a companion with someone. Remember, we learned that to break bread, companaria, is to be a companion to somebody. And so in this meal, when we share this meal, Christ is abiding with us and we are abiding with him. We have this communion, this fellowship with Christ. And Paul captures that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he writes this, Isn't the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing? And the Greek word is koinonia, we learned it a couple weeks ago, a sharing in the blood of Christ. Isn't the loaf of bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Koinonia means fellowship, communing or participating with it means friendship. And so in this meal, you know, when, when I'm hanging out with my friends, if I'm going to spend time or become a friend with somebody, or if I'm hanging out with my wife or anybody that I care about deeply, I'm going to break bread with them. We're going to have dinner together. And in this case, this is the Lord's Supper. It is his meal. And we are having this fellowship together. We are becoming companions when we take the bread. So when I come forward to receive the the bread and the wine and dip the bread in the cup and I receive it, I remember he abides with me. He promises to be with me always, even at the end of the age. And I am his friend and he is mine. We abide together with one another in koinonia, in fellowship with each other. All right, there's so much more that I would love to share with you. I do want to say this when it comes to communion that there are two fundamental differences in terms of understanding how literally to take what Jesus said about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. And this is one of the differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics. In Roman Catholicism, this is a place where Roman Catholics take this text very, very literally. And so for them, the bread and wine of Holy Communion, this, this idea developed pretty early on in the life of the church, that the bread and the wine of Holy Communion actually become the body and blood of, of, of Jesus. This is a very powerful idea that they become the, blood, the body and blood of Christ. This happens in a moment where the, holy, where the priest prays for the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And often a bell is rung at that moment, and, and it's thought that even though the bread and the wine still look, feel, and taste, like bread and wine smell, like bread and wine, that it's at some deep spiritual and mystical level, they have been transformed or transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. And so when you're receiving this, and and at that moment, the the, the holiest place in the church is at the altar. And, And this is how in Catholic churches, the Eucharist becomes the single most important thing that happens in the service because Christ is physically present through that transubstantiation, through that transformation of the bread and the wine. Christ is literally, physically, bodily present in your midst. Everything hinges on that moment. But there were, there were Catholics in the, just before the Reformation, Martin Luther, a Jesuit priest and Catholic, who began to say, you know, that seems like it might overstate what Jesus was getting at just a little bit. And Martin Luther said, Christ is truly present in the bread and the wine, but I don't believe that, that Christ actually has transformed, the Holy Spirit has transformed the bread and the wine into, in some true you know, mystical sense, the actual body and blood of Christ. They continue to be, they continue to represent him. And so often we find in, in John's gospel in particular, it's symbolic language, metaphorical language. And so for Protestants, typically we say, at least in our tradition, we say that Christ is truly present in the bread and the wine. Christ is everywhere, but he's certainly present in the bread and the wine when he's asked us to remember him and that this represents, represents his body and blood for us. But we don't believe it literally is the body and blood of Christ through the process of transubstantiation. And so we look at Holy Communion and we see how powerful this is as a, as a way of receiving God's grace and remembering who Jesus is and remembering the covenant and knowing his forgiveness and recognizing that we have eternal life and all of the other things we've just talked about. But we don't look at this as the literal body and blood of Christ, but instead that Christ is truly present in the bread and the wine. And for some, that might just be semantics. But for Catholics, this is a really big idea. And this is part of the reason why in Catholicism, Uh, Others who are not Roman Catholic are not allowed to receive Holy Communion. You can receive a blessing, but you can't receive Holy Communion because unless you believe what the Catholics believe about this, literally becoming the body and blood of Christ, and really goes beyond that, unless you embrace Catholicism, you aren't able to fellowship at the table. Whereas in in the United Methodist Church and a number of other Protestant churches, we say this, this meal belongs to Jesus. And he was constantly feeding. He fed the thousands of people without asking about their theology first. He fed the multitudes. Jesus was constantly looking for the, and searching for the lost. And so Christ invites to his table, all who long to meet him, all who long for his forgiveness, whether you're a United Methodist or from another background or wherever you come from, just like Sarah Miles, when she walked into the church in San Francisco and found her life upended by the power of the Eucharist. All right, I want to give you two invitations as we close today. I want to invite you to receive Holy Communion. Those of you at all of our locations, that, that you, I want you to know that you are welcome at the Lord's table. If, if for some reason you don't feel comfortable, or if you come from a church background where you're not supposed to receive somewhere else, that's okay. But know that from our side, you are welcome at the Lord's table. If you want to follow Jesus, if you need his grace and mercy, we invite you to come. And I'd like to invite you to take communion as often as possible. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, thought that we should, as, as uh, Methodists, receive communion as often as possible. At some of our locations here at Resurrection Leewood, we have a little chapel. And right after every service, Holy Communion is available. And then the first weekend of the month, we celebrate the Eucharist within the context of worship. At some of our locations, we do it a little dif- differently than that. And, but yet every week, we have the possibility of receiving communion right after worship. Different of our locations do this somewhat differently. But I want to encourage you, whenever... if You know, if it's communion weekend, you know the first weekend of the month is communion weekend. I want you to say, I want to make sure that I'm there to receive holy communion. This is important to me. This is an opportunity for me to physically, tangibly receive Christ, all of his promises and to fellowship with him. And for those of you who are worshiping with us online or on TV right now, I want to encourage you to have bread or crackers, wine or grape juice, or even water if you don't have either of those two and have them handy so that immediately following the service, we can pray and that you can receive holy communion where you are right now. The second thing I want to remind you to do and encourage you to do is to remember that Jesus gave thanks before every meal. And I've often wondered when it comes to Holy Communion if if what Jesus intended at the Last Supper, I mean, there's several ideas. Maybe he intended every year at the Passover that you see in the Passover his body and blood given for us. That would be a once a year event. Uh, it's possible that he intended whenever you come together as a church that you receive my body and blood, that you, you in this holy meal, you, know, you are reenacting and you are remembering. And, and, th- and that is certainly what we do in churches. But I've often wondered if Jesus had in mind that every time you sit together, he was with his friends just having a meal, every time you break bread together, every time you have a meal, remember me. And so we do that whenever we do what Jesus did before a meal, and that is we stop to say grace. We stop to say thank you. And I wanna encourage you to do that because I believe that every three times a day, most of us eat a meal. And what happens if every time you stop and eat, you remember Jesus? What happens if you remember that he's the bread of life? What happens if you remember he forgives? What happens if you remember he's your friend? What happens if you invite him to be a part of your table? And, and, And what happens if every one of those meals as you're eating physical food to nourish your body, you're inviting Christ to nourish your soul? It may not be technically the Eucharist, but it is a communing with Christ. And so this weekend at Resurrection, we're giving all of our folks a set of prayers, eight, uh, some classical prayers, some prayers we've written as mealtime blessings. And for all of our children, we're giving four prayers that they can pray at mealtime. And for those of you who are worshiping online or on TV, you can download those at core.org slash next. You can find them there. You can download them. You can cut them up. And you're going to find beautiful prayers that help you get in the habit of Praying before every meal. And if you feel a little embarrassed about praying, you know, at at a meal while you're eating out, just try this. You can do it with your eyes open. You can look at your food and just look like you've got your fork in your hand if you're a little nervous about doing this and just whisper under your breath, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for everything. Be the bread of life for me. Amen. Try it. And then take the next step and maybe be a little more bold when you're with your friends or family. Just say, hey guys, I'm going to say a prayer. Do you all mind? And, and you know, I'll be happy to pray out loud. or you, know, you do as you feel comfortable. But if every meal three times a day, you stop to pray and to give thanks and to remember that Christ is the bread of life, I believe you'll begin to live every day the power of the Eucharist. And you will do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that at the last supper, when your heart was heavy and you were preparing to be arrested and then crucified, you stopped to give us this gift of the Eucharist. You invited us to share in holy communion, holy fellowship with you. You offer us this supper that belongs to you as an expression of your grace towards us and your desire to be in fellowship with us. We thank you for holy communion. We pray, O God, that you would help us this day As we receive the bread and the wine, to receive Jesus, your Son, that He might dwell in us, form us, shape us, forgive us, heal us, and love us as we seek to love Him. Would you whisper this prayer under your breath right now? Jesus, I need you. I accept you and your love. I am yours. Thank you for everything. Thank you for loving me. In your holy name, amen.
0: Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship, online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.